Right, the kiddos can go to children's church. And if you've got your Bibles, you can open them to uh, Matthew chapter 25. No surprise there, right? So I've been studying through Matthew's gospel for quite a long time now, and we're coming to the end of the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about the future, and it's a critical portion. Let's pray. Father, we just thank, thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of Jesus. He is over all things. And here he tells us what's going to be, what's coming, and the need to be ready. And we ask you to help us to grasp the great truths here because there's so many wonderful aspects of it as well. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you start studying all that the Bible has to say about the end of the world, it can become quite a task to sort out the sequence of events, the divine judgments and the resurrections and the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. There's so much information in the scripture about the coming kingdom, but nowhere in the Bible is everything spelled out in one place, like sequentially. I mean, the book of Revelation is sort of all about that, but even that has not got everything sequentially laid out for us that other passages of scripture um, include. So a lot of thought and carefully comparing passages and language has to be done and naturally scholars come to different conclusions about some things um, but on the big issues there's substantial agreement for anybody that holds to a historic grammatical literal hermeneutic you know a way to stu study the Bible like it means what it says if you believe that it comes out pretty pretty similar so the substantial agreement is that Christ will return bodily to earth that's very clear in glory and judge the nations and establish his own glorious kingdom which will be global and of which he will be um, the ruler of the world. I mean there's so many scriptures that talk about that. So that's all real firm. So Matthew 25 starting at verse 31 and following focuses on a particular aspect of the return of Christ and the judgment of men. It's a very particular time and a particular situation in view. So the text tells us exactly when it is, but most people casually reading the Bible, they read things like this and they just sort of pull it out of the whole context. You know, we've been studying the Olivet Discourse and there's a, Jesus is going somewhere. He doesn't just say things and then throw something else out there and, and Matthew just says, oh, here's a story, here's a parable, here's a... It's structured, and if you've noticed anything all through our studies of Matthew's gospel, it's very structured, and when Jesus is speaking, he's taking you somewhere. You follow uh, the flow of what he's saying, and many people take this passage we're looking at today and just pull it out and just say, there, there's some kind of judgment going on, but it's very specific, and it's related very much to the context of everything he's been talking about. So it does tell us things about God's judgment generally, but the situation here is precise. So Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom on earth and fulfill all of God's promises to Israel and some other nations as well, but of course Israel's the center, foremost to Israel because he made these promises to Abraham, very specific. And as I've said many times here, the Abrahamic covenant is the engine that drives the whole Bible. So specific promises have to be fulfilled, and they will be, plus all the additions to that covenant added throughout the rest of the Old Testament prophets who made many promises to Israel which all have to come true. And so Jesus returns after what he called in Matthew 24 the great tribulation, this time of great distress on the earth. 
Matthew 24, um, 19 through 20. And so he returns with great power and glory and thus begins his millennial reign. But as you look at all of this, the, the earth isn't transformed immediately. It's not like a snap of the fingers and, oh, it's a different world. Here we are. Um, it's a process. He comes, there's judgments, there's a restructuring of order of things. Um, nations meet with him. He, they stream to Jerusalem, it says. The world is not instantly transformed. It is changed. Even nature is going to be changed, and that probably takes some process as well, dramatically changed, but sometime in, is involved in a transition to this new world, this new order. So one, things that has, one thing that has to be straightened out like right away, probably the most important thing right away, who's going to enter Christ's kingdom? I mean, that's the big question. Who will be allowed to live in the new world? Because before his return, the world will have gone through what he calls birth pangs, all these terrible times, and then the great tribulation, such as has never occurred before or since, Jesus says in Matthew 24. So there'll be years of wars and plagues and famines and massive divine judgments, which, in which the book of Revelation says, it doesn't give the numbers, but if you, it gives percentages of the world population that will be destroyed by God's judgments. Billions of people will perish during those just few years leading up to Jesus' coming. But quite a few people will survive and see the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. Some of those people will be His people and some of those people won't be His people. And here's what He says. This is Matthew 24, 29. This isn't our text. I'm backing up and then we're going to get up to where we are. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is Matthew 24, 29, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, is that a made-up story, or is that really going to happen? It's really going to happen. That's, that is what is coming to the world. In Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, in Luke chapter 21, verse 27, it says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in, great, in a cloud with power and great glory. And then skip down a few verses in Luke, and it says, For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. So he comes, and many people are alive, survivors of the tribulation, if you will, all over the world. So what's going to happen to them? What happens to them? Well, they're going to be separated. And so that's our text today in Matthew 25. A division will take place between Christ's people and those who are not His people. And that's exactly why Jesus has spent so much time, as we've seen in the last weeks, about being ready for when He comes. He will return unexpectedly and the people will be judged according to what He finds. There will not be opportunities to make it right or kiss up to him or whatever people think they're going to do when he shows up. I'll work that out when he gets here. That's not how it's going to be. What he finds is the way things are. So if you want to think about it in legal terms, the moment of his return marks the moment of being booked. So you got arrested, right? Maybe you can talk the cop into letting you go, but once he takes you to the station and you're booked... You're going to go before the judge. That's all there is to it, right? So his coming is like being, the world is booked, right? The, the day is set before the judge. And you can say, I'll never do it again, but you're still going to go before the judge. 
You can say, uh, here's $100 to forget the whole thing, but you're still going before the judge. So nothing's going to stop that from happening. So it's like that. Once you're booked, you're going before the judge. But this trial won't have any witnesses because the judge knows everything. He knows everything about you. He knows it all. He knows every thought you've had, every word you've spoken, every deed you've done. And we've seen the last several Sundays here that by looking at Jesus' parables that once the master has returned in all of these parable stories he's told, he has no ear to hear pleadings for those that have done wrong. He, he, it's too late. In chapter 24, verse 50, he acts very decisively. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He doesn't even get to say anything. He catches him in the act of abusing his people. Matthew chapter 25, verse 11 and 12, he refuses to open the door to those foolish maidens that didn't have oil for the lamps and once the bridegroom closes the door, he won't listen to their pleadings. They're left out. Chapter 25, verse 30, he is completely unmoved by explanations of the lazy servant who did nothing for his master while he was away on a distant journey and it says and he cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth all those stories in the same way there's judgment and there's no excuses and it's done there's no bargaining there's no second chances there's no case to be made there's no special circumstances to plead there's no arguments to be heard there's no appeals and that's why Jesus uses this word picture in our text today to describe the division that's going to occur with the people that survive the Great Tribulation. So verse 31, it says, now we're in our text in Matthew 25, 31. When Jesus, the Son of Man, comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. It's a separation. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce which kind of is a fanciful picture of this great separation in a general sense. But like I said, this is a very specific moment, a very specific time. How can the Lord Jesus gather all the nations before him? Well, he's God, so he can do anything he wants to do. But notice he comes with glory, and it says with all the angels with him. And there's a lot of angels, and they're quite powerful and enormously capable of anything. And they will gather the survivors before Christ. And Jesus actually describes the ability of angels to do this kind of thing way back in Matthew chapter 13, verse 26, when he said, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send forth his angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. So there's no limits to how far these angels are going to go to pick people up and bring them in. So he can, they can do that. So in today's text, the nations are gathered. So it's pretty clear that these are Gentile peoples. Gentiles. The word nations, ethne in Greek, anytime it's plural in the New Testament, anytime it's plural, it's the, the Gentile nations. The nations of the world. Non-Jews. People other than Jews. I'm a Gentile. Right? So there are Gentiles who belong to Jesus. 
and there are Gentiles who do not belong to Jesus. They are separated into two groups. Why two groups? Because when it comes to the standing of human beings before God, there are always only two groups. Always. Because there's two destinies. Those who are His, there are those who are not His. They are gathered, mixed, but then a separation takes place. The sheep over here, the goats over here, and Jesus says, as the shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And in, sheep and goats can graze together, but in the ancient world, when they brought them in in the evening, they would separate them out, and that's exactly what he's describing here. It would be an image that everybody that lived back then would instantly recognize. The separation of the sheep and the goats. So too... In the evening of the world, the sheep are called out and kept separate from the goats. And then what follows, beginning in verse 34, and going all the way to the end of Jesus' discourse, the end of the chapter actually, we find a contrasting parallel structure here in the way Jesus gives this. And it goes like, um, well, it gives a description of what's going to happen to each group, the sheep and the goats. It's the same pattern but the end result could not be more different. So he gives this pattern, and it goes like this. First the sheep, he's going to speak to the sheep, verse 34, and, he gives, and he's going to welcome them, and then he gives the reason for the welcoming, verse 35 and 36. He uses the word for, that's the reason. Then they ask him a question in verse 37 through 39, and then he explains it all to them in verse 40. Then he speaks to the goats, sending them away, verse 41. He gives the reason for this, verse 42 and 43. He uses the word for to explain the reason. They ask him a question, and he explains it to them in verse 44. So, and then verse 46 summarizes the contrasting destinies of these two groups, again using a parallel structure. Now, the reason for this structure, as appears so often in Scripture, is to emphasize that there are only two possible ends I have this, this feeling that many people know they're not among the sheep, but they really don't believe they're a goat either. They think there's a third way or something okay is going to happen. Well, I might not be a sheep, but I'm no goat. I'm, I'm kind of a cow or a pig or something. I'm something different. Or an actin, you're a horse, right? <laughs> but the scriptures, in the scriptures all the way through, there are never, ever three destinies, or six, or ten, or forty-seven, or anything like that. It's always two. It's only two. And at the end, each individual is in or out, included or excluded, in joy or in sorrow and agony. Every single time, it's just two groups. That's why it's the great divorce. You can only go two directions. And this separation is going to be like that. So let's look at the first group. Jesus speaks to them, verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those are good words. Come, blessed, an inheritance. What does the child of God inherit? A kingdom. They're invited to partake of a kingdom designed for their good and for their blessing. Designed, planned, and ordained from the foundation of the world. For them, it's designed for them. So the nightmarish days of human sin and oppression and injustice and wickedness and rebellion is going to be overthrown. And all that was meant to be and more 
will be. Instead of injustice, you'll have justice. Instead of sin, you'll have righteousness. Instead of a curse, you'll have blessing all around. And nature itself will be renewed and harmonious and you know, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together and little children will play by the cobra's hole, you know, and not be heard and all of that. So those rightly related to God through Jesus will be warmly welcomed into his kingdom because the kingdom's for them. It's for them. It will answer every longing of the human heart, this kingdom. Everything we think should be will be there. Every virtuous desire, every genuine craving of the human soul for something higher and better and truer will be made real there in that kingdom. It'll all be fulfilled there. Now, the reason for welcoming of the sheep into the kingdom is put in very simple terms. Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So now this description of what opens the kingdom to these Gentiles might surprise us because the Bible teaches over and over again that salvation is by faith. That's how you get in, right? Right. Yeah, don't, 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 don't slide on me there. No, that's the plain teaching of scripture, right? Believe. It's also true that saving faith in Christ is bountifully fruitful, genuinely fruitful, and God rewards the fruit of faith. You know, James and uh, Jesus' brother in his New Testament letter reminds us to prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. There are people that are deluded about their standing with God because they're not doers of the word. That's James 1.22. And then right after that he says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So religion that is all talk is not genuine. The Apostle John says the one who does not love does not know God. That's pretty simple. For God is love. So those folks in Matthew 25 are saved by faith. but That's why they are sheep. They have an existing relationship with God through Christ. They've heard the gospel during the great tribulation and respond to it. Remember, he's talking to a specific group of people who've gone through a specific event and have arrived in this amazing place standing before their Savior. Their good works are being rewarded as the New Testament always teaches that good works will be rewarded. Faith produces works which God graciously rewards. So these acts of kindness mentioned in verse 35 and 36, they seem like sort of standard good person sort of stuff, you know? These acts of kindness are just basic things, being a good person, going to visit people in jail. And this is where people make the mistake. They pull this totally out of the context of the passage and they say, anybody that does these nice things is going to be in the kingdom. That's not what's going on. That's not what's going on. These people just came out of the great tribulation. Read chapter 24 and the rest of Matthew uh, 25. There's very, the context here, these behaviors in context are heroic. They're heroic. The context is a period of great governmental power 
exercised to destroy the Jewish people. That's what's just happened in their lives, the last few years of their lives. And notice how Jesus personalizes these kind deeds. I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was a stranger. He's saying that these actions were directed towards him. And of course, the sheep had never seen him. They believed in him, they loved him, but they'd never seen him. So verse 37, then the righteous, notice who they are, they're the righteous. They will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Now remember, they're called the righteous. These are believers who have the righteousness of Christ already because of their faith. But they didn't know that when they were being kind to Jesus' brothers, his little ones, they didn't know they were serving Christ. They were merely showing, they were showing Christ's love to the seed of Abraham. That's what they were doing. But these Jews are brothers of Christ by blood, by covenant, and by faith. There in verse 40. The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now can you broaden this out to a general principle? Of course you can, but that's not what the primary context is. They are not deeds done just for anyone, but for these brothers of mine. If you fed and clothed and visited my brothers, Jesus says, you did it to me. Now in our day, you know, kind acts to other people for a Christian seems pretty ordinary. That's what we do, right? I mean, that's kind of what it's like. But what, just, what did these people just go through? In the time of the the beast of Revelation, the Antichrist, if you want to call him that, such kindness to a targeted and oppressed people by a powerful government will require incredible courage and commitment and risk. You know, if you go to the enemy of the state and visit him in prison, you become what? A marked man. It's like that in China today. If you go visit... Pastor Yi in prison today, you'll be a marked man and they'll follow you forever. And this is going to be that times a thousand. The world before Christ comes will be run by totalitarians that will make Stalin and Mao look like Boy Scouts. I mean, small fry guys. It's going to be, you can start to see it developing in China today. The surveillance state, it's everywhere. The absolute control over everybody having a social score with the government, following everybody, facial recognition, tech, facial recognition technology everywhere, knowing every move you make. So it's a huge personal risk to love a Jew when the Antichrist, Hitler-like and like Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC who tried to completely eradicate Jewish culture and Jewish religion and slaughtered many, many thousands, tens of thousands of Jewish people. It's the same spirit, the satanic spirit that hates God's people. That's what the situation is. So who are these brothers of mine? I, I just have to think these are his fellow Jews. That's who Jesus is talking about. This judgment is about how Gentiles treated Jews persecuted viciously by the beast of Revelation, the Antichrist. Remember we talked about how in Matthew 24 it was very 
Even though it's talking about a lot of global things, it's always focusing on Jerusalem and what's happening there. It's very Judeo-centric, if you will. The whole chapter, chapter 24, is all about that. And that's because the great tribulation period, even though it's global, that's Daniel's 70th week and the Daniel prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 where he's got this seven year period that's still future and that's when this prince who is to come, this wicked man is going to persecute God's people and be very rough on them. That's why Revelation chapter 7 gives major emphasis to the sealing of 12,000 Jews from each tribe of Israel. Have you ever read that? 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000. An angel is sent down to seal them during this great tribulation time, this time of great trouble. Revelation 7, 4 says, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. They're Jews. So Israel, during that last seven-year period, is the primary instrument of God's working in the world, just like they were supposed to be when they were the covenant people under Moses and in the land of Israel in the Old Testament. They were to be a priestly nation to the world, and they will fulfill that obligation in that latter time. And those sealed individuals will do that, called, sealed, sent out into the world. And the powers of the Antichrist, like Hitler with a lot of technology and other dictators in the past, are bent upon their destruction. Revelation talks about that in great detail as well. You guys know the story of Cory Ten Boom? You've ever read The Hiding Place? So what happened to her? So here's, here she is, a lady in her 50s. She's made watches all of her life. She's well known as a watchmaker. I think she was the first woman to become an official stamped watchmaker in her country. And um, they hid Jews during World War II. Now, when the Nazis finally found out about that and broke into their home and took the Jews, what did they say to Corey's family, to her dad and her, she and her sister Betsy? What did they say? You shouldn't do that anymore, you naughty people. No, they took them too. Because they hid Jews, they took them and put them in a death camp where her sister died. It's like that. It will be like that in the Great Tribulation to clothe the naked Jew, to feed the naked Jew, to bring him a cup of water, to be kind, to love them, to serve them. You'll be risking your life. So the sheep then are Gentile, Gentile followers of Jesus helping the Jews for Jesus' sake at great risk. Why will they do that? Because sheep follow their shepherd. And they have the heart of Christ for his people. They trust and they love him and they serve him loyally. Now remember the pattern we discussed. Jesus speaks to the sheep. He gave the reason he's rewarding them. They ask him a question and he explains it to them. Well, let's turn to the goats. Because there's exactly the same pattern, but exactly the opposite words are spoken to them. So he speaks to the goats in verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me. Not welcome, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So for the sheep it was come, blessed of my father, inherit. For the goats it's depart, accursed ones, into eternal fire. Come, depart, blessed, accursed, inherit a kingdom, eternal fire. I mean you can't be more diverse than that, more different than that, more extreme than that. 
And he gives the reason, verse 42. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And he personalizes it. It's just like he did the first time. He was in need and they could not be bothered. Are they surprised? They ask a question. They themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? When was that? We didn't see you. Had we seen you, we sure would have helped you. You know what the difference is between a sheep and a goat? The sheep are surprised to learn that they served Christ and the goats are surprised to find out that they've completely failed him. That's the difference. The nature of the surprise is what reveals who they really are. There is here perhaps another thing to notice. Did you pick up on what the goats are really being condemned for? What it is that they did? It never says anything they did. It only says what they didn't do. That's all it says. He will answer them, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these You did not do it to me. It's not what they did. It's what they failed to do. Now, the Bible does say we're judged for our deeds, but Jesus isn't emphasizing what the goats did. He's emphasizing what the goats didn't do. You know, theologians speak of um, sins of commission, things we commit, and sins of omission, the things we should have done or were obligated to do and didn't do, the failure to do what's right. James 4.17 says, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And we minimize sins of omission. Oh, I just didn't get around to it. But Jesus doesn't. And they are worthy of eternal fire, he says. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote of these words of Jesus in Matthew 25. He says, This can leave no conscience untouched, for in it the goats are condemned entirely for their sins of omission as if to make us fairly sure that the heaviest charge against each of us turns not on things he has done, but on those he never did, perhaps never dreamed of doing. We always think the worst sins are sins of commission. That's what we believe. But that might not be the case at all. Some of the worst sins are things we don't do. Well, I don't worship idols. But do you neglect the true and living God? That is a grave sin. If I play on my computer all day and watch TV and have never given a thought to the creator of my being and the savior of the world, would it do me, do me any good on judgment day to say, I haven't killed anybody? The point is these folks, they didn't have an interest in what God had an interest in. They didn't have God's heart about anything. That's not what mo- motivated them or moved them or uh, drove their life in any way, shape, or form. What God was doing didn't concern them enough to lift a finger. Not even in kindness to people being persecuted for God's sake. God's people. So all they need to do is to be condemned. To be condemned is is to do nothing. That's all they have to do. That's why the constant theme here in these chapters is to be ready for judgment. Be ready for for the judgment. Don't be caught surprised. It's one thing to walk into hell knowing all along that that's where I'm going, but that's a very small number of people that know that. Very small number. 
Jesus is speaking to the great majority that are going to be absolutely surprised. When, did, when would we see you? When, when, when? They have a lazy, ill-informed expectation that God owes them salvation because they're not murderers. Many people are like that. And Jesus is speaking to the great majority who are going to be surprised. It's so foolish. We're all sinners. We're all sinners deserving condemnation. 10,000 times over we are. God doesn't owe anyone salvation. That's what people think. He, he owes it to us, but he doesn't owe anyone that. Justice, in fact, demands death and expulsion. How could I allow you into my kingdom? You're wretched. So we have to get it right. And we better understand just what is the path to life because while the world says it's a wide path, Jesus said it was a narrow path, remember? Way back in Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. But there are, and there are many who enter through that. Then Matthew seven fourteen, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Few who find it. Well, if it's only few, what hope do I have? You've got a big hope because here you are sitting right here this morning and it's all laid out for you. It's all right here. You are lucky. You are fortunate. You are blessed. You've got a big hope because right now you're listening to the words of Christ. So you're way ahead. All you got to do is walk that narrow path. That's all you got to do. You have to choose. Do nothing or follow Jesus. The narrow path, you can define it really simply, and we went through it way back in the Sermon on the Mount. Humble yourself, recognize your poverty of spirit, your complete unworthiness, bend your knee to Jesus as King and Lord, and receive the gift He offers you. What's He offering me? Something like complete forgiveness through His shed blood. Something like reconciliation with God. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Something like that is the free gift. That's the narrow way. It's God's way. He died in our place, satisfying God's divine wrath that we deserved. He took it on Himself so we don't have to. All you have to do is follow Him. That's the narrow path. He's coming to give a kingdom designed to bless his own people because his people want more than anything to be with him. Well, there's one verse left in the whole Olivet Discourse at the very end of chapter 25 and we'll talk about it next week. (laughs) It's kind of important for our time. 